0: Good morning. Welcome again. We're going to continue in Second Samuel. Uh, if you have a Bible, please open it. Keep it open in front of you through the sermon. Follow along. Second Samuel chapter 16, verse 15. I'll read into chapter 17. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers, uh, we call them chapters. The little numbers, we call them verses. Uh, just follow along as best as you can. Second Samuel chapter 16, starting at verse 15, we continue uh, in the middle of this dark episode in David's life where he's been run out of his capital city uh, by his son, who is taking over his throne. His son's name is Absalom. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the Archite, David's friend, came to Absalom... Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? Why didn't you go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and the people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son, as I have served your father, so I will serve you." Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house and all Israel will hear that you've made yourself a stench to your father and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, "'Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he's weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband.' You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archai also. Let's hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba, as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found, and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city. And we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Pray with me. Father, open before us now the wonderful things that are laid there for us to behold so that our hearts might be transformed so that we might live in this world as dark as it is with great confidence in your wise rule over all things. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm. Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who was sent to a Nazi concentration camp with her sister after their family was caught hiding Jews in their house. In her memoir about it, called The Hiding Place, which I would highly recommend, she tells the story of how she learned to see that God was at work uh, even in and through the darkest suffering. Uh, There's one point in the memoir when she's in one of the concentration camps where her and her sister Betsy have been transferred into a new barracks. Uh, The new barracks is massively overcrowded and it's infested with fleas. She talks about how she's despairing about how things have gone so, from so bad to so much worse for her. Uh, but then her sister, in the middle of it, reminds her of what Paul says in one of his letters. Uh, he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And so her sister then leads her in very begrudging prayers of gratitude for things like the fact that they still get to be together, for the fact that they were able to sneak a Bible in. Uh, They thank God for the fact that their barracks is overcrowded because it means there's a lot more women there who can hear about Christ as they share with them. But then her sister just barely convinces her to even thank God for the fleas. Uh, Corey says, you know, I think this is ridiculous. I couldn't imagine any possible way that fleas could be something that I should be thanking God for but she does it anyways with her sister. Uh, She talks about how later uh, they come to realize that unlike in their previous concentration camp they'd been in, unlike the other barracks they'd been in, uh, the prison guards don't ever come into this barracks. Uh, Because there's no guards coming into the barracks, they're able to openly lead multiple evening Bible studies uh, through which many of these women come to know Christ. Uh, Later on, they overhear one of the guards saying that they don't go into the barracks because of the fleas. And so if it wasn't for the fleas, she realizes none of this would have been possible. Her and her sister realize that God's at work behind the scenes. Uh, that even He uses and orders their suffering for His good and for His wise purposes. Our passage today is primarily about how God's at work behind the scenes of our lives, behind the scenes of this world. About how God rules over even the darkest situations in order to protect and preserve and provide for his people and for his kingdom. Uh, we're going to see today in this next episode of David's life that it's not just that God works in spite of evil or in spite of suffering, but actually that God works through evil, that he works through suffering, that God is always ensuring that his goodness prevails over them and against them. Uh, Today is really a continuation of last week's theme. Last week I told you, even though the world looks like it's totally out of control and God's a loser and nothing he cares about matters anymore, you should be encouraged. Uh, Because God actually is at work. God will triumph in the end. Uh, Today we're continuing that. You should still be encouraged. Uh, If you're like me, uh, you read the news this week or you looked at social media or you just sat alone with yourself for about 20 seconds and you became very discouraged. But today, we're continuing that theme. You should be encouraged, uh, not just because of the fact that God is ruling over it, but today, particularly, we're going to see how God is ruling over it. How is it that God can be ensuring that things will work out His way in the end? Uh, We see that it's through Him working behind the scenes in every detail of our lives, in every detail of our world, even the dark ones. You first see that here today in what I'm calling the clash of the counselors, the clash of the counselors. Absalom, David's son, has seized the kingdom from his father David, who's now on the run in the wilderness. Absalom has just about everything going for him, if you remember from last week. He's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. He's got widespread popular support. We were told even that he has great hair. uh, And he also has, we heard last week, he has David's greatest cabinet member, this guy named Ahithophel. Ahithophel has defected from David's cabinet and has gone over to Absalom to help him take the throne. But we also heard last week that David has this friend and this associate named Hushai. David has appointed him right as he's leaving town to be his secret agent, to stay there in Jerusalem, to covertly steer Absalom in a direction that will hopefully benefit him uh, in hopes that David can return to his throne. You read in verse 20, that Absalom turns to Ahithophel for advice about how to begin his reign. He tells Absalom, here's what you should do, sleep with your father's concubines. He tells him, when you do this, all Israel is going to hear that you've made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you are going to be strengthened. Uh, if you don't know, a concubine in the ancient world was pretty much uh, like a wife. A wife. Uh, So what they do is they pitch a tent on the roof of the palace. They bring David's old concubines into the tent. And then everybody there in public knows exactly what's going on as they see Absalom strut into the tent. Now what's happening here? Uh, You might remember, if you've been tracking with us as we've been going through 2 Samuel, uh, you might remember uh, way back that God had actually promised David that there was going to be disaster coming upon his family. We've even seen, as we've gone through First Samuel earlier, uh, that David has been uh, doing something he shouldn't have been doing. He's been accumulating wives and concubines for himself. God had commanded his people, and especially his kings, you should only have one wife. Uh, we've already seen David sowing the seeds of his own destruction by violating this command, uh, which is d- by acting like what the kings around him would have acted like. Uh, typically, when a king died... the the next king, uh, the heir, would make sure that his old wives or his uh, they would be taken care of and provided for. Uh, They would not become the next king's wives and that king would not uh, have them as sexual companions. And so in violating his concubines, uh, Absalom is making a serious power play. Uh, He's not only doing it against these women, but also against David, uh, whom everyone can now see was not able to protect his own family. Uh, Absalom, in a very wicked way, is making a huge statement about now, who's now in charge. And so it's a total humiliation for David. Uh, like we said, God had actually promised way back that this was something like this was going to happen. Uh, David, uh, his fatal flaw, his, his great catastrophe in his life was his own sexual predations upon a woman named Bathsheba. David had preyed upon her, then he killed her husband in order to cover it up uh, and then he was confronted about it by God's prophet. David did repent for it, but, and God did forgive him. And that's wonderful, and that's glorious, and we celebrate that. But at the same time, we saw that God was, promised him that there's going to be serious, long-lasting consequences for your sin, even though I forgive them, even though I hear that you are repentant. Uh, and God said part of the consequences of your sin is going to be the open violation of your wives by somebody from within your own family. David had tried to hide what he did, but God says, I'm going to expose what you've done. What you tried to do in private, the world's going to see something like that happening in public. The very same rooftop from which David had leered at the young Bathsheba is now precisely where everybody can see his son Absalom forcing himself on his wives. The text wants us to see, it wants us to know That God is ruling over Absalom's sin. That in some mysterious way that we will never be able to fully explain or understand, that God planned or allowed for Absalom's sin to happen in order to discipline David for his own sin. We have to be clear God is never the author of sin, God never approves of sin. But at the same time, God is never merely reacting to sin. God is never shrugging his shoulders at sin. The Bible teaches very clearly that God rules over sin, that he works through sin, that he plans for sin. We call God's attentive care and rule over all things. We call that his providence. His providence, the fact that God rules over everything and everything means everything. Uh, I'm going to come back to it in a little while, but we need to see this morning that Absalom's sin against David and against his concubines, as horrible as it is, is not outside of God's good and wise plan for his kingdom and for his people. The text tells us here that the point of all of this is not just for Absalom to dunk on David, but ultimately the point of it for Absalom is to draw a line in the sand, to force people to make a choice between David and him. Absalom does not want anybody sitting on the fence. He does not want anybody left who might hope that there's some way that this father and son can work things out somehow. His act is so bold... And so egregious that everybody must decide whose side they're going to be on. In other words, Absalom is saying you can't have it both ways. Speaking of God versus wealth, Jesus says you can't serve two masters. In this case, it's a forced choice between spectacular, successful Absalom and weak and failing David. But part of what's going on here is that it's not just that you have God or Jesus on the God side of the equation demanding exclusive loyalty, but part of what's happening with this text is God showing us that Absalom, and Absalom as a picture of the world and all of its false gods and false idols that we're always so tempted by, it's also a reminder that the world also demands exclusive loyalty. This is not just an issue of God or of Jesus being particularly uptight. Uh, and the world is easygoing and laid back and lets you kind of do whatever you want. It's striking for us today because just like with Absalom's sexual sin, what's probably the sharpest end of the spear for us today when it comes to loyalty to God's king is also sexual sin. An increasingly heinous and transgressive sexual sin. The meaning in our world of progress, the meaning of progress has very quickly moved from redefining divorce to redefining marriage, now to redefining gender itself. For a long time, Christian sexuality was viewed as prudish or weird, but increasingly it's viewed as dangerous, even murderous. For some of us, it's getting harder and harder to just keep your head down. Both God and the world demand a choice. Whose side are you going to be on? Absalom's or David's? Sometimes sin, sometimes somebody else's sin, has a way of forcing the issue. But at the same time, you do see somebody here in the story who's doing his best to shrewdly live for God in the midst of an evil world. You have David's friend and secret agent Hushai, who is also a counselor in Absalom's court. Absalom turns to him and says, well, this is surprising. What are you doing here? You're one of David's best buddies. Why didn't you go with him? Uh, In chapter 16, verse 15, you see Hushai explaining himself. He's using all this very carefully crafted language, all these double meanings to give Absalom the impression that he's not a threat, even though he never actually says that he supports Absalom. And everything he's saying can be understood to mean that he's actually loyal to God and to God's true king, David. In verse 18, he says, I am for him whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen. Absalom hears that and thinks, oh, he's talking about me. Look how successful I am. Look how popular I am. But what he means is David. Who shall knows. That even though Absalom is the one who's sitting on the throne, he has the little placard on his desk with the job title that says King of Israel, Uh, even though he has those things and even though he's very popular and he would have won in a landslide election if they were had a democracy, uh, Hushai knows that Absalom is not a legitimate king. And therefore he does not deserve the support or the submission of God's people who have an obligation to pray for and to wisely seek the overthrow of tyrants. Hushai is shrewdly navigating life in an evil world with all kinds of gray areas. He is not compromising with the world. He's not trying to make peace with the world. But rather, you see him working in the world. And in a sense, he's working in the world against the world, but for the sake of the world, because we know that the world can only enjoy the blessing it needs when it submits itself to God's king, and God's Word. In chapter 17, you hear about Ahithophel's second piece of advice. Right after we've been told how seriously his counsel was taken across multiple administrations, both David and Absalom heard what Ahithophel said like it was the very Word of God itself. That's how wise he is, how widely respected he is. And so now that he's firmly established himself as king in Jerusalem, Absalom turns to him and asks for advice about what to do about David. How do you defeat him out in the wilderness? Ahithophel's idea is for him to lead a quick surgical strike. He says, Place the special forces of Israel under my command so that I can get to David while he's still on the run. Uh, He says, I will go out there. I'll totally overwhelm him, including lots of women and children who are running with him. Uh, But I'm only going to kill David. I'm going to spare everybody else. We're going to suffer no casualties everybody's going to have no choice but to come back and bow before you, Absalom. Verse 4, you hear that the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. That means all the leaders, anybody with had any influence or support, they think, wow, this is great. This is just one more great idea from Ahithophel. Things are humming along so smoothly for us here in Absalom's kingdom. But then you get this huge curveball, totally unexpected. Verse 5, Absalom says... Yeah, this is a great idea, but let's get Hushai in here. Let's see what he thinks we should do. Uh, This is supposed to shock you because you've just been told that everybody thinks that what Ahithophel says is so great and so wise that you might as well be listening to God. Uh, Think about how much Dr. Fauci was trusted a few years ago and multiply that by about four or five. And that's how these people view Ahithophel and his counsel. So this is a huge shock that he would turn to somebody else and say, well, what do you think? It's in God's hidden Providence. Here's that word again. It's in God's hidden providence that Absalom has this idea that he shouldn't have to ask for somebody else's advice. David's secret agent. Hushai offers a completely different plan. Uh, He says, you know what? You guys are being really naive. Uh, You got to understand, David is famous for his military prowess. He spent decades in the wilderness avoiding being captured and killing lots of people. He says, you are very foolish and naive to think that you're going to easily capture him or that you're going to have no casualties or that nobody's going to be worried about what David's capable of. So he says to them, he says, how about this? Instead of old man Ahithophel leading a quick surgical strike, how about we take young strapping Absalom and we have him leading a shock and awe campaign? He says, let's draft everybody from the very tippity north to the very tippity south of Israel. We're going to get everybody in the army. We're going to take some time to build these huge forces. And then Absalom, with all of his wonderful flowing hair, is going to march in front of it to slaughter everybody, to tear down any city that tries to help David. It's a brilliant move. Hushai, we know, as his secret agent, is trying to buy David some time so that he can catch his breath so that he can prepare for the attack that he knows is coming. But Hushai does it by appealing to Absalom's sense of pride and vanity. He says, don't let the old geezer lead the special forces. That's ridiculous. You can be at the front. You can lead this wonderful, incredibly overwhelming campaign. Absalom has always wanted to be at the center of the action. He wants to be the hero of the story. Hushai's feeding right into that for him. You should beware of stories where you're the hero, uh, whether it's somebody else telling it to you or, worst of all, when you're telling it to yourself. Shockingly, Absalom and all his leaders do a total 180. In verse 14, we hear that they reject the advice of Ahithophel even though they thought it was great to start with, and they go with Hushai's plan instead, uh, the one that's actually going to help David. The key sentence in the whole story... Look at it if you have your Bibles open. The key sentence is chapter 17, verse 14, where for the first time, God appears as an active character in the narrative. Why did they all agree to go with Hushai's plan? Because it says the Lord had ordained, literally the Lord had commanded to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. So you are now being told explicitly what has been happening Implicitly, You're being told that actually what's happening here is not just that David was really smart and he has a smart friend uh, with a smart plan, but that actually God has been sovereignly ruling over all these grisly and dark events in David's life, that he's been orchestrating them all so that he might help him and secure his kingdom. Even though if you've been following the story of Samuel, you know very well that David is a profoundly flawed and sinful man who does not at all deserve God's kindness. God's still working on his behalf, ruling every part of his life to help him. In verses 15 and following, you hear a couple more ways that God provided for David and for his companions in these unexpected and yet very mundane ways. First of all, you have a little story. I didn't read it, but you have a little story there in chapter 17 about how two of David's spies are going to go tell him about these uh, two conflicting pieces of advice between the two counselors so that David can be prepared for the worst. Uh, On the way, we hear that their cover is blown, but thankfully, uh, because of the quick thinking of a local village woman, uh, they just barely avoid getting caught by Absalom's cronies. Uh, There's no spectacular miracle. There's no lightning bolts from the sky. There's no booming voice from heaven. All they have is just a clever stratagem and a narrow escape. The point is that God's the one behind it all, even if he never comes out and shows himself and says, oh, that was me who was doing that. That was me who was arranging that for you because I really want to help you. Uh, Here's how one book puts it that I read this week. I found it helpful. It says that God's scepter is unseen. His sovereignty is hidden... Behind the conversations and the decisions and the activities and the crises of our lives, we see only grocery lines and diaper changes and school assignments, but through and over and behind it all, Yahweh rules. He is not absent, but neither is He obvious. The second way you see God providing for David in unexpected ways is in verse 23. You hear that the defector Ahithophel realizes that his advice is not going to be followed. He sees the writing on the wall. After a long and gloriously successful career in the royal cabinet, it's all come crashing down upon him. And so you hear in this little story there that he sees that he's out of Absalom's favor. He suspects that David's going to pull it off after all. And so he heads home, arranges his affairs, and hangs himself. He's just like Judas Iscariot. Uh, killing himself after he's betrayed the Lord's true king. You hear that Ahithophel, in that little story, you hear that after he hangs himself, he gets a normal funeral. Uh, he gets all kinds of acolytes about how great he was. But we know that what's really happening is that God has avenged him. God has avenged the harm that he did to David. We're being told that God will not let his enemies get away with their work forever. Sin always catches up. The third way you see that God is sovereignly working behind the scenes for the sake of his king is in verse 27. Again, I didn't read it, but basically the story is this. David uh, is running, running, running. He gets to an area with his ragtag exiles, an area called Mahanaim. That means that he is in King Saul's old stomping grounds. This is David's predecessor and great enemy. Uh, David ends up in his area. They are totally exhausted, we're told. They have no supplies. They're out in the sticks. But suddenly, out of nowhere, we're told, three men show up. Uh, with all kinds of food and equipment for them. One of them, we're told, is a pagan prince. Uh, One of them is an old friend of Saul's. Remember, that's David's old bitter enemy. And the third one is described elsewhere uh, as being really, 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 really old. Uh, These are not exactly the Avengers. This is not Mr. T and the A-team. They are not the kind of people you would expect to be helpful for David. But here they are. They show up, they're seeking to bless him and to bless his kingdom. Right when David's at the end of his rope, God provides exactly what he needs from the unlikeliest of allies. And so once again, you are told through this story that God is sovereignly ruling over all the circumstances of David's life, even over his suffering, even over his sin, even over the consequences for his sin. So you can see in all the ins and outs of this whole chapter that God's at work behind the scenes to protect and to extend his kingdom under the rule of his king, Jesus. Not just in and through the day-to-day details of our lives, although he does do that, but even in and through the dark corners of our lives. And so be encouraged. God's working in our suffering. He's working through it. He's working even through our sin. He's working even through the sins of other people that have been committed against us. In order to accomplish his good and his wise and his beautiful purposes for his beloved children, we live in a world that does not see or believe in any kind of inherent meaning or purpose to our lives or to our universe. The only meaning that we have in this world that has uh, evacuated God out of the universe, the only meaning we have is whatever meaning you can force upon everything around you. It's whatever subjective feelings or order you can impose on it. That is a very depressing way to live this story is telling you this morning that there is order, there is meaning, there is a personal God ruling over every detail of your lives and he's working all of it for good. The greatest example of this, of course, we heard about earlier in the service is the crucifixion of Jesus. The crucifixion of Jesus, God's son, is the most evil, heinous thing that has ever happened in human history. It was infinitely more evil than the Holocaust. And yet, it was the central piece of God's plan to bring the greatest blessing to the world. And so again, be encouraged. God is ensuring that his kingdom will triumph under the rule of King Jesus. For all of those who trust in Jesus, we can be confident that our loving Father will watch over us. He'll take care of us as we live in his kingdom, even if and when the world around us seems so overwhelming and brings so much suffering into our lives. I close with the precious words of the Heidelberg Catechism, Echoing down through the last few centuries to us today, asking Christians, what does it mean to believe in God's providence? I'll read two questions and answers for you. First of all, what's God's providence? Listen carefully to this. This is so beautiful. God's providence is the almighty and the ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade rain and drought fruitful and lean years food and drink health and sickness prosperity and poverty all things in fact come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand next question how does that help you? how does knowing that help you? we can be patient when things go against us we can be thankful when things go well And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you rule over every aspect of our lives, not as an abstract force, but as a personal and loving Father. Help us to know and to trust that your good plans for us really are good. That you really are at work to help us and to bless us in the end. That all of this will resolve into a beautiful symphony of your beauty and glory. Help us, Lord, in the midst of our discouragements and our struggles. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.